Galatians chapter 1, verses 11 to 17, on page 972, and Adam will bring us our reading. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it, and I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age. Among my people, so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. So many other voices can drown out the beauty of God's voice. It can be an ongoing challenge for God's people to hear God's voice. Even going back to Genesis, we hear that the question that the serpent asked was, did God really say that? Later on, Moses is no sooner gone up the mountain than Aaron is listening to the voices of God's people, convincing him to make a golden calf. In Micah, that we finished looking at a couple of weeks ago, you will hopefully remember that there were false prophets proclaiming peace where there was no peace. Stripping away the weeds that had grown up around the gospel, the challenge to hear God's voice, that was one of the tasks of the Reformation. When the Church of Rome officially split from the Church, decades after Luther had nailed his 95 Thesis, one of the many errors that the Church of Rome introduced as official doctrine was the authority of church tradition being equal with that of Scripture. No longer was the Church of Rome under the authority of Scripture, the sole authority of Scripture, but instead it effectively became its own authority. No longer was Christ the sole head of the church, but instead the bishop of the Roman church became the head of the church in place of Christ. Incidentally, and it's a very politically loaded term, that's why we don't use it, but when the Westminster Confession refers to the Pope as the Antichrist, anti is a Greek prefix that means in place of, In Matthew 5.38, it's literally an eye in place of, or an eye anti, an eye. The same for vicar. Vicar means in place of. The vicar of Christ means in place of Christ. Yet we as a Reformed Church confess that there is no other head of the Church than the Lord Jesus Christ. Antichrist is not a helpful term because of the political load that it carries these days. But if you hear it, please don't think of Big Ian ripping up a photo. 
Instead, think, who is the sole head of the church? Is it Christ? Or is it a man? It might also be helpful to remember that the Pope didn't officially become recognized as infallible in matters of doctrine until 1870. And for reference, that was 11 years after the Ulster revivals in 1859. Some other things that the Church of Rome introduced as official doctrine, however, should cause us much more concern, especially what she teaches about justification. The following on the PowerPoint are from the Council of Trent, a series of meetings that ran from 1545 to 1563. And these are straight from Rome. Rome officially teaches since 1563 that if anyone says that their justification is only the favor or the grace of God, or if anyone says that Christ Jesus was given to God as uh, given of, of God to man as a redeemer in whom to trust and not a legislator in whom to obey, let them be anathema or accursed. If anyone thinks that the gospel that we preach and the gospel that's preached in the Church of Rome is the same gospel, friends, they haven't really been doing their homework. What we do believe as a church is that our justification is only the favor or the grace of God alone. And we do most definitely believe that Christ Jesus is our Redeemer and not a lawgiver. Just in those two articles, please notice that we have not accursed anyone. We have not said that anyone is beyond the pale. Instead, it's the Church of Rome that has accursed or anathematized us who do believe in justification by faith alone. We are anathema, we are cut off from the grace of God. And despite what any of you may have read concerning joint declarations on justification or discussions with individual priests or ministers or believers, nothing has actually changed. These were all re-ratified, reaffirmed at Vatican II in the, in the early 1960s. Yet, justification, Luther said, is the very doctrine on which the church stands or falls. One of the things that drives false gospel proclamation is when folks claim to have revelations that are authoritative, authoritative with scripture, outside of scripture. They claim to know better than what God has said. If you check the history, that's how Mormonism got started, how Islam got started, and how many other false cults and denominations got started. Extra-biblical authority. And very sadly, the Church of Rome thrives on authority that is outside of Scripture. Officially, one of the ways that Rome teaches that we can be saved comes from an extra-biblical revelation from the 17th century. A nun, Margaret Mary Alcoke, saw a vision where she claimed that Christ told her several things. If you grew up in the Republic as I did, you'll be very familiar with them, the Sacred Heart of Jesus. 
one of the revelations that says how we can be saved is this. Jesus apparently said to her, My all-powerful love will grant to those who will receive communion, Mass, on the first Fridays for nine consecutive months, the grace of final repentance. That only became official doctrine in the late 18th century. So again, relatively new and over 200 years after the Reformation. But yet nowhere in Scripture are we told anywhere that if we take communion on the first Friday of nine consecutive months, that we will be saved or granted final repentance. So please, if you hear about these things, don't think that these teachings date back to Peter and Jesus, because they simply don't. In fact, the teaching that Mary's body after she died was taken up into heaven, the assumption, that might shock you to know that was actually only from the 1st of November, 1950. As I look out, there's folk here who are older than that, much older. The critical blow in the Roman Church's view of justification is that it believes, it teaches, that our works contribute to our justification. And that comes down to two words, imputation versus infusion. The Roman Catholic view of grace, and they're big on grace, their view involves infusion. Infusion is not imputation. Infusion rejects imputation. We confess imputation. We confess that Christ's righteousness is imputed or credited or given, accounted to us. Nothing that we've done, but all of Christ. And that involves a lot of legal metaphors that I'm sure you already know. We stand as sinners, guilty, before a just judge. Christ stands in our place, takes the punishment that we deserve, and his righteousness, his goodness, his holiness is given to us. He swaps our sin for his holiness. Our sin is imputed to him, and his holiness is imputed to us. Some folks call that the great exchange. We have already been declared just or righteous in God's court. God didn't have to do any of that. It really is an act of God's free grace. God working in us after that is the fruit of justification, the fruit of the Spirit. It's our sanctification. We're not saved by it, but that's a fruit. Luther referred to us as the at the same time, justified, but also a sinner. I'm a sinner, but I also stand justified already. We are saved by faith alone, but not by a faith that is alone. One reformer, Francis Turton, gives the example of the sun. There's heat and there's light, both connected, both integral to the sun, but it's by the sun's light alone that we see. We don't see by the sun's heat. There's work and there's faith. Both go together. But we're justified by faith alone. You know, even though it might feel cold out, we don't feel the heat. That doesn't mean that we can't see the, from the light of the sun. In 2 Corinthians 5, uh, Paul puts it like this. 
He says that for our sake, God made Christ to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Christ became sin, but yet we became the righteousness of God. For our sake. The Roman communion outright rejects that. It outright rejects imputation. If we believe that, we are accursed by Rome. Instead, Rome teaches a two-stage justification. Rome teaches that at baptism, we're initially justified. Christ's righteousness is infused into us at baptism. Christ's righteousness mixes with ours an infusion so that our own works do really help us to become fully righteous. Our works are meritorious. Like going to the first mass every Friday of every month for nine months. Or doing the Hail Mary or doing acts of contrition or whatever else you may have heard. Then when we die, hopefully, we might become righteous. We may be declared righteous because we may possibly have become as righteous as Christ. But yet assurance is completely lacking in the Roman system of grace. We're justified at baptism, that's part one. And then when we die, if, if we've done enough, we are finally declared righteous. That's part two, and we go to heaven. But if we die not being righteous enough, which is 99.999% of the faithful, we go to a place called purgatory that purifies us until we are good enough for heaven. And again, purgatory only became an official doctrine at Trent, 40 years after Luther. When we say that justification is an act of God's free grace and that Christ's righteousness is given to us, imputed to us, and received by faith alone. That is an entirely different gospel message than what Rome preaches. And at least Rome have the good sense and honesty to acknowledge that, that we believe different things, and that because of that belief, we're anathema. But folks, if one of them is right, the other one has to be wrong. If one of them is the gospel of the Bible, then the other one has to be a gospel that is contrary to what St. Paul preached. If infused righteousness is the message that Paul preached, then imputation, what we believe, is false. I teach imputation. My hope is not in anything that I do, entirely on what Christ has done. But folks, if I am wrong about imputation, then that's really bad news for me because that makes me a false teacher. If I'm a false teacher, I am leading you people straight to hell. But if, if you believe that I'm wrong, you have to resign your membership of this congregation and head straight to the chapel. Repent and do whatever penance the priest gives you. Because that's how we're saved. One of the outcomes of the Reformation was to quiet the voices that were trying to drown out God, to put God's word front and center, to get it into the hands of the people, not in Latin, a language that only the educated spoke, 
but into the hands of the people sitting in the pews. So the men and women and boys and girls would be able to hear what God has said to them. I can't stand up here and teach that we're all the same. I can't stand up here and teach that we pray for the dead because you will not find that anywhere in Scripture. There's no one in purgatory to pray for because there is no purgatory. Instead, Trent also adopted extra-biblical books to justify their position. None of what the Reformers taught was new. The Reformers didn't come up with this stuff in 1850. Instead, the things that we mention, the things like the Catechism, like the Confession of Faith, we simply use them as little short summaries of what Scripture teaches on a given topic. They're the subordinate standards. They are not the Bible. Think of them as study notes. The Bible is the final authority, not the Confession, not the Bishop, not a vision, and certainly not tradition. Sola Scriptura. Instead, the Reformation was a return to the Gospel that Paul preached in Galatians. In the passage that Ellis preached last week, I hope that you were crystal clear that there is only one gospel. There has only ever been one gospel, and there will only ever be one gospel, because there is only one God. And God and his word, what he's already said, are intimately connected, like the heat and the light from the sun. So Paul is very, very careful at what he preaches. Paul preaches God's word, not his own, because this is not Paul's gospel. Paul is a man under authority, the authority of someone who called him. In verse 16, that's why he didn't immediately consult with anyone, because he wasn't called by man. He was called by God as an apostle. Paul didn't go to Jerusalem to get the permission of the apostles because he was already an apostle. Not from man, not for man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. Instead, he went into Arabia and to Damascus to preach the gospel among the nations, the Gentiles. Because it was, Paul, it was God's message to the nations, not Paul's. That's why his emphasis in verse 11 as explaining the origin of the gospel. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. Salvation by grace alone has been there since Genesis. Did God have to shame, have to sacrifice animals to cover Adam and Eve's sin and shame? Did he have to save Adam and Eve on the day that they sinned when he said, on that day you shall surely die? No, an act of God's free grace, bound by nothing. The gospel is not a collection of sayings built up into a body of canons and concyclicals and papal bulls over a few hundred years. In fact, Paul actually denies anything close to that in verse 14. He refers to the traditions of the fathers, which had taken a whole set of oral laws and added them as equal authority to Scripture. And those traditions, folks, were only a few hundred years old. This is the kind of stuff that drove Jesus up the wall. In Mark 7, Jesus goes through the denomination that Paul was part of. He says, the Pharisees, 
They've ignored what God has said to uphold to the tradition of the elders, of the fathers. The whole weight of extra-biblical teaching that presented an entirely different gospel. That is what Paul loved. Paul loved that stuff. In verse 14, we find that Paul, Paul wasn't zealous for the word of God. Paul wasn't zealous to listen to what God said. Instead, he was zealous for the traditions of man. And in fact, when the word of man opposed the word of God, what did Paul do? He tried to destroy the church of God. Instead, it took a supernatural work to open Paul's eyes. If you look at verses 15 and 16, ask yourself, who set Paul apart? Who called Paul? Who revealed his son to him? Was it a church? Was it Paul himself? Did he guess it? What about the so-called first pope, Peter? We'll see in the weeks ahead that if Peter really was the first pope, then Paul really was the first Protestant. How about the traditions of men? Did they reveal Christ to Paul? No. God is the one who saved Paul, an act of God's free grace. So in verse 16, what does Paul say he preaches now? The traditions of the elders, the law, how to cooperate with God so you might not have to do too long in purgatory. No. Paul preaches Christ and what he has done. The same thing he preached to the church in, the, in Corinth. He vowed to preach nothing except Christ and him crucified. The same thing he preached to the church in the, uh, Ephesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works that no one should boast. The same thing he preached to the Romans. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. And the same thing that we'll see later, that he preached to the Galatians. By the works of the law, no one will be justified. We'll be looking later on in a couple of weeks about how that relates to what James says. But it's the same point that Paul's making. At, to a different audience, Paul was speaking to legalists. James was speaking to libertines. But the point is that Paul is getting back to preaching Christ and his grace because there is no other gospel. I'm always challenged and encouraged by the two contrasts that Paul makes in Galatians and Philippians. In Philippians, there's folk preaching Christ from selfish motives. Paul says, leave them be, Christ is being proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. In Galatians, there's folk starting to preach Christ and works. Paul goes after them like a man possessed. But more often, who do we find ourselves going after? People who preach Christ from selfish motives? People that we don't like? Or people or uh, churches that preach Christ plus works? Why is that, do you think? When I give out those little cards on what is justification... 
Some folks said they didn't want one because they were going away for a couple of weeks or on holiday or whatever, and absolutely fine, no problem. That's folks' right and privilege. But please don't think that anyone is doing me or Scott or the elders a favor by learning that. You're not. It's meant to help you. It's for your own personal benefit. Learn it or don't, it's entirely up to you. But folks, if you have an awful week and you wonder, how on earth could God possibly love someone as sinful as me? And you feel the weight of that guilt bearing down on your soul. Isn't it good news? Isn't it helpful to remember that little summary of what Scripture teaches? That you've already been declared just. You're already saved. Not because of anything that you've done, but only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to you and received by faith alone. Isn't it great news to remember that there is nothing, nothing that you can do to make God love you that little bit more or even anything that will make God love you that little bit less? How about if you've done some awful stuff in your life? Maybe, like Paul, you even tried to destroy the very church of God. But now, by virtue of your age, don't have the time, don't have the strength to build up enough good works to know for sure that you will go to heaven when you die. You have no assurance that you will indeed hear well done, good and faithful servant. Isn't it good news to know that when you came to Christ, all of your sins were thrown into the sea? You were washed in the blood of the Lamb. You were declared righteous there and then. You were made whiter than snow. And when you die, God will look at you, see Christ's righteousness and will declare, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into your master's rest. I know that already. I'll tell you until the cows come home, that if I was to be judged on my own goodness, my own holiness, my own righteousness, my own merit, it's not purgatory I'd be going to, it's hell. None is good, no, not one. But I will also stand here until the cows come home, which I think is 12 p.m., don't worry. Every Sunday, and preach to you that Jesus Christ has taken all of my sin on the cross. He has taken all the punishment that I deserve, everything, and has set me free. Did I deserve any of it? Nope. No more than a man that was going around trying to destroy God's church. Isn't it good news that in God's courtroom the sentence has been passed the paper signed, the punishment executed, and not in some place called purgatory or some future justification, but in Calvary. The penalty has been paid already. It is finished. I'm a free man, and I know there's free men and women here too. That is the same gospel that Christ preached. That is the same gospel that Paul preaches. There is no two-stage justification. There is no purgatory. There is no salvation by grace mixed with works. You know, tragically, Mary can't hear your prayers. 
no matter how fervent you are. None of this is in Scripture. None of it. And all of them are traditions that are quite recent. Traditions of men. Unless you mishear me, I said it before and I'll say it again. As your minister, I don't care less what your political allegiance is. I don't care. Vote for whoever you want to. The church is not affiliated with a political party. We have zero authority to tell you who to vote for or who not to vote for. You can call Michael D. Higgins or Queen Elizabeth II the head of state. I don't care. But I do care that you know that Christ is the sole head of the church because Christ is the one who loves you and who died for you. We are not the Vatican. We are not a political state. Whoever you are, wherever you're from, whatever language you speak, you are welcome here. And we are happy that you're here because we have good news to tell you. Not the traditions of man, but the word of Christ. As Paul says in Romans, faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. The word of Christ. Not traditions of man. The gospel that Christ himself revealed to Paul. The finished work of Christ. It is finished. That doesn't mean it is finished plus you have to do a little bit more. Grace means it is finished. Now, folks, this morning, Protestant or Roman Catholic or whatever you are, what are you trusting in? Who are you trusting in? Who are you trusting in to save you? Yourself? Really? I can't even remember to put the bins out. Folks, if your faith is not in Christ alone, you believe a false gospel. And it doesn't matter if you are a card-carrying Presbyterian or a devout Roman Catholic. Don't believe the word of man over the word of God. Because if it's not Christ alone that you trust, you tragically believe a false gospel. So Eden Grove, what is justification? Justification, it's okay you can speak. Justification is an act of God's free grace wherein he pardoneth all our sins and accepteth us as righteous in his sight only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. Amen. And we thank Christ for his imputed righteousness to us.